0: Memorabilia. Collecting sounds with Keith Tessler. There is, of course, a very specific thing about uh, electroacoustic music, which is that if you want to study it, you need to listen to it. If you want to study uh, Beethoven, you can study it by reading a score, by analyzing a score, or by playing the music yourself and of course there is some documentation about electroacoustic music, and sometimes there are even scores, then the question is, if you study those scores, do you study the music? I have my doubts about that. So uh, my my point is that if you want to study electroacoustic music, you want to find out what uh, the uh, nature of that music is and what the specific aspects are where you compare works, you need to listen to it. That means that you need records, you need tapes, and and sometimes uh, you want to know something about a work of which you can see by studying the materials that what you are listening to is quite far away from what the composer intended, because he had to go through many, many, many stages in the technical production process with analog copies and so on before he was at the point where the piece was finished. Now, sometimes you have the luck that a composer took care of his material well, and that he has all those earlier stages of the realization of a composition. And then, for me, it just became almost a kind of natural approach to reverse the process and just go back into the technical uh, uh, procedures that were made to realize a piece and to find out what that process was by comparing the different stages. I found out that sometimes it can be uh, very interesting, you know, to recompile those materials in a digital environment and then suddenly improve the sound quality of such pieces. I have done that with uh, the work uh, by, by Varese uh, Le Poet Madeleine which is something that uh, well, that I have. I, I, I'm known for now that I have made that reconstruction, but I have done it with many works by of Koenig, uh, of my own composition teacher Jan Boerman, of Dick Rijnmakers, and. It was two things. It was first my own interest in those works and um, the connection that I felt with the way that these pieces were made, and that I understood that by analyzing those works in terms of their technical realization, I could actually find out things about those works that interested me. I don't consider myself to be a collector. You know, a collector is somebody that wants to have things, that wants to add things to his collection. Then when somebody comes along and says, look, here is my collection, you know, I have it. I'm missing this and this, but if I have that, then my collection will be complete. And collector for me is, it has a kind of uh, negative uh, side to it. My interest is not so much to have those things myself, to keep them for myself. My interest in those things is to, to make them public to preserve them for future generations. It started very practical just because I have the responsibility here of a tape archive. And that tape archive goes back to 1956 because Synology came out of a studio that was uh, founded at the Philips Research Laboratories in Eindhoven in 1956. So the first work that we have in our archive is actually the first work that was made at Philips. So all that material went from Eindhoven to Utrecht, when Synology moved there. And then, luckily, one of the staff members of Synology in those days, Frits Weiland, immediately understood how important it was that the compositions that were made in their studio, that they were uh, kept... that they were documented to you know to build up an archive so then when Synology moved here to The Hague in 1986 they brought a collection of tapes that is somewhere around 1500 uh, boxes that doesn't mean 1500 compositions because quite often there are multiple copies of a work and sometimes there are also tapes that were part of the production but that nevertheless were kept and When I became a teacher here in 1993, I became responsible for the analog studio, which is where we are now. And the analog studio is the studio where the tape recorders are. So automatically, I became responsible for the archive of analog tapes. And gradually, this archive just fascinated me because there were many pieces there that I had never heard before. Many pieces that were never released on CDs or gramophone records, and that was my motivation. And the other motivation was that, for some reason, I get along really well with old composers. (laughs) Maybe because I'm interested in in a music that is not only just music that they made because they liked it, but music that has a kind of um, theoretical starting point, something that, from the compositional point of view, is put at the position of a certain problem. And I'm very interested in those things. So uh, I get along with these composers. I I interview them very regularly. And some of them, I mean, the most important ones for me, like Jan Boerman and Dick Ruijmakers and Gottfried Michael König are still alive. So I talk to them a lot. And then they open a a door and you see tapes, you see scores. And um, I felt a kind of uh, responsibility, a kind of uh, moral responsibility almost, to make sure that those things were taken care of. Luckily we are not talking about cassettes because, uh, I mean, some people like the lo-fi quality of cassettes and I, I respect that. But the tapes that we are talking about now are tapes for uh, reel-to-reel uh, machines, so open reel uh, tape recorders. And uh, one full reel, so you, you're you talking about a box that is as large as a record cover of an LP. Sometimes even a little bit larger, so a reel might have uh, 1,000 meter of tape on it. At the tape speed uh, of the 1950s, which was uh, 76.2 centimeters a second, such a reel uh, m- m- might last somewhere between 15 and 20 minutes. And uh, that's an expensive affair also. Now, the nice thing about that is that that tape material, uh, uh, opposite to, to, to cassettes, is of a very high quality. If the conditions are not too bad under which th- those tapes are kept, uh, you can still play them as if they were recorded uh, yesterday. Well, when I say you can still play them... There are of course certain conditions. One of them is that you have tape recorders that are in good condition. People think that when they buy a second hand Rayvox on eBay, that they have uh, a high quality machine to make transfers. And and, I mean, a Rayvox can be a very good machine, but it can also be a very bad machine. And the same goes for for a Studer or a Telefunken or, so it has to do first of all with the state in which the machine is. But much more importantly, it has to do with how that machine is calibrated. And there is a whole list of procedures that you have to go through in order to be able to play a tape back properly. And uh, this is something that should not be underestimated. And this is also one of the things that I have taken very seriously. So I have really studied how to calibrate tapes, where to buy your calibration tapes, uh, what, what are the small differences that you can make to achieve uh, optimal results. Also, what are the differences uh, historically? Because there were different standardizations in the 50s than there are now. Uh, so you have to be aware of all those things. Is a tape coming from the United States or from Europe? There, there are, there, these are all things that you have to, uh, to be aware of. So I did not only start buying high-quality tape recorders, but I also really learned from the experts how to calibrate machines, how to maintain machines, uh, all these kind of things. And then, indeed, you are able to play back a tape from 1960 as if it was recorded in 1960. uh, So it's, it's not an easy thing. That is another advantage of the tape archive that I have responsibilities for here at Synology. There is absolutely no box of uh, rubbish material there, you know. It has always been uh, high quality broadcasting standard uh, uh, tape material that was used in those studios, which is not the case when you think about material that people used in, in private studios, because especially in the 70s and the 80s, there was a lot of tape material that is completely unplayable now. It has to do with a chemical process, that the uh, the coating of the tape, which is basically, it's it's a petrochemical product, and it just gradually dissolves, so it becomes sticky. They call that the sticky tape syndrome. And there are recipes around on the internet how to heat such a tape. They call it baking tapes, so that this sticky tape syndrome is at least gone for a short while, and then you have to very quickly play the tape and then afterwards you can, you can throw it away. The most important historical material is actually not anymore in this building, but it is in a climatized space in the archive of the uh, Dutch Music Institute, which is only a 10 minute walk uh, from here. And it is a highly protected area where they keep scores of Mozart also, hand, uh, handwritings. And then there is a climatized space where our most uh, precious tapes uh, uh, are. There is something about the experience of taking a big reel of analog uh, tape out of the box, putting it on a machine. You know, it is a, it, there is a physicality about that that you totally miss when you press the spacebar of a computer. Now, from the point of view of listening to the uh, recordings, for me a good digital transfer is as good as the analog original there is of course a, a, a huge advantage in the way that once you made the digital copy, you can copy a recording of an hour in, in, in only a few seconds now, eh, with a fast uh, hard drive. But originally the idea was that once you digitize a tape, you preserve it for uh, eternity. But it is not true, because you know those tapes that we are talking about now, that I said, well, are 50 years old, it is really the question if the digital copies of those tapes that we make now will be able to be played back in 50 years' time. We have created a new problem, and, and the digital media are, they're like air almost. You know that they are there, but you have absolutely no physical control over them anymore, so you can make digital copies of digital copies of digital copies, and of course, that's all fine. I don't mean that they deteriorate by, by making digital copies. They, they stay absolutely identical to the original. But the whole logistics that you need to manage that digital material is is incredibly complicated. With the idea that we were now making a kind of final versions of those works, we actually, we have created a new problem, which is how to preserve those digital uh, transfers. The only real problem that I have encountered with analog tapes is the splices come loose. And sometimes you have tapes with hundreds of splices in them. The tape material that I uh, made transfers of, of uh, Koenig's uh, essay, which was a piece from 1957 made in the, in the Cologne uh, studio, many of those splices came loose the first time that I tried to play back those tapes. And then you are really talking about hundreds and hundreds of splices only in, in, in a few minutes of, uh, of material. So that takes time, you know, to restore all those splices. But once you have done that, the tapes play back quite well. Now then, there comes the question, what do you allow yourself to change in that material once you have it on your computer? It's important, I think, to have the same approach that you see now in in art restoration. You don't do anything that you could not undo. hmm? You always keep the first Straight transfer as a kind of reference. So then the question is: For what purpose do you want to change something? If you want to play something in a concert, or you want you want to release something on a CD, I think it is completely legitimate to make reductions of noise to get rid of clicks that you hear to I'm not a purist in that sense, and that probably has to do with the fact that I am also a composer, because I am absolutely sure, and sometimes, as I say, you know, when I talk to Koenig and to Boerman and Reimakers, they are extremely happy that they still have the possibility to get rid of those uh, artifacts, you know, because if they would have had the chance to do that in the 60s, they would have done so. That is just a matter of taking a kind of artistic responsibility for the work that you do. And you should not forget that, uh, for instance, in the process of broadcasting in those years, in the process of making gramophone records, many, many changes were still made after the composer had delivered his final uh, uh, material. And there also you see that technicians just took uh, uh, responsibility for the work that they were doing. They knew, okay, this is the material that I have, there is the uh, gramophone record player for which this product is is uh, is made. And in order to make it sound there, uh, as good as it sounds here, I need to you know do things. So they did it, and that's very good. So this is also why there are, there are differences in in gramophone record pressings because uh, you know they were made at different times by different mastering engineers. It's also very important to understand the situation of the studios at that time it's it's interesting if you look at photos of those studios and you look where the loudspeakers are they are not in the position that we know it now you know so just these two loudspeakers that create a kind of uh, stereo image in front of the man that is behind the mixing desk no The composers are usually standing in a space and they are operating devices and the loudspeakers are somewhere, you know, in the corner, uh, on the floor. So this obsession with how things sounded that we seem to have nowadays was not there at all uh, when when this music was made. And very often those loudspeakers were really bad. If you just think of the advertisement of uh, his master's voice with the dog that sits in front of this uh, gramophone player, the message of that advertisement is that the voice that comes out of the gramophone record is identical to the uh, original voice of the masters. So the dog hears his master talking from the from the gramophone record and he is not able to, uh, to hear the difference. If we listen to a 78 RPM gramophone record now, we know that there is a huge difference, but for some reason Just the fact that this voice was recorded and that one was able to recognize it as a voice, was enough to qualify it as being identical to the source. Of course now we have developed an audio quality standard that is much higher. And we have loudspeakers that are incredible compared to what they had uh, 50 years ago. So that also means that if we listen to recording of a piece of music now, and even if we are sure that we are making a one-to-one transfer, we are hearing something different than the composers were hearing when they were making these pieces. And that is a responsibility. That is something that you have to uh, to bear in mind when you release that music. Richard Barrett made a very strong uh, comment in one of his lectures. He said that if, if Mozart would be in this room now and he would listen to a recording of a piece that he wrote himself on a pair of loudspeakers as we have them now, he would probably not be able to recognize his own music because he is completely unexperienced in this whole process of listening to recordings that we are uh, completely familiar with. We shouldn't forget that this is a highly artificial situation. There are all these cultural developments on top of developments on top of developments on top of developments and that. That is a a tradition that we are in, but that is actually a very exceptional one. There is one example, for instance, of a piece by George Ligeti. Maybe you know that history that he came from Hungary to Cologne. Uh, He was a refugee from the political system in in Hungary at that time. I think it was in fifty seven that he came to to Cologne. He was already in contact with Stockhausen before that time, and um, he... Planned a piece to make in the electronic music studio of the Cologne radio, which at that time he called Atmosphere. And Atmosphere later became an orchestra piece of Ligeti that is very famous. And Ligeti had made a score on graph paper for that piece that turned out to be impossible to uh, produce because he had made large amounts of sine wave components. Uh, He designed that, that all had their initial patterns. And it was just impossible to make. And then in 1996, when Ligeti was a guest here at the conservatory, we made a digital realization of that uh, score in in C sound. It was actually in this space that Ligeti heard that music for the first time. And uh, it's interesting because what I just said about Mozart, because it indeed also took Ligeti quite a while before he recognized his own music. Uh, whereas we were absolutely sure that we made it precisely according to this, uh, this score. Uh, that, that score was now released as Pièce électronique number 3. So we made a C-sound realization of it. Um, so that was made completely from scratch. I have made other realizations that are somewhere in between, for instance of Koenig's Terminus from 1962. I found uh, the uh, original production material, which he kept uh, at his house, and in order to make the piece again, or to reconstruct it on the base of that production material, certain Procedures such as uh, transposing the material up or down or adding reverb and these kind of things needed to be done in the digital environment after the production material was transferred to the computer. I had an interesting discussion with uh, Koenig once about Glenn Gould, because it is always said that he, in the music of Bach, for instance, that he takes it way too far away from uh, what is written in the score. And therefore, it is considered to be a very subjective approach to that uh, music. For instance, if you listen to the two and three-part inventions by Bach in the Glenn Gould performance. Mm Those recordings are really crazy. The microphone positions are really strange, and he adjusted the mechanics of the piano in such a way that you know he could basically just put his finger on the key and the hammer would already hit the string. That gives all kinds of artifacts, just mechanical artifacts, that he liked in a way. And Koenig just said, "Well, it just, just really depends on what you want. You know, maybe Gold is is very pure." Maybe he just comes very close to what the composer had in mind. It's a possibility. So I wouldn't say necessarily that I am not a purist, only uh, I am not a purist in the sense that I want everybody to hear the technical uh, disasters from old equipment. I want them to come as close to a pure version of the music as the composer has intended it. And again, as I said, this whole idea of being pure is in a way false because you know we are never pure. We don't have the ears of the people of 50 or 100 years ago. We don't have the situation of the playback equipment of those times. wouldn't necessarily say that it is my favorite one, but the piece that I have spent most time on is definitely the Poem Electronique by Fares, and not only the music part, but also the image part. Philips, as a company, made a contribution with their own pavilion to the World Fair of 1958. They had done that before, in, in, also in Brussels in 1935, and now they did it again in 1958. And um, instead of making a building that had all kinds of pieces of equipment at display, that Philips was producing, they had decided to make a kind of empty building and in that building there would be a performance that would give a demonstration of the technical possibilities of the equipment that they were producing at that time. This was actually quite a popular and commercial approach that they had. They were thinking of music by Benjamin Britten who had made a piece before uh, which was a kind of demonstration piece for children The young person's guide to the orchestra. There's a film of it from 1941 or so. It's quite nice, actually. But then Kalf, who was the uh, artistic director of Philips at that time, decided to approach the architect Le Corbusier for this building. And Le Corbusier said yes, but he had all kinds of conditions. And one of the conditions that he had was that he would take care completely himself of the uh, scenario for this show that would be uh, played uh, in the in the pavilion and he also uh, insisted that Edgar Varèse would be commissioned to compose the music and from that point on the Phyllis Pavilion became the avant-garde uh, project as we know it now and Phyllis was very unhappy with it only gradually when they saw that it was becoming a success they changed their mind a bit but, uh then the Corbusier uh, handed over the design of the actual building to one of his collaborators in the studio at that time, which was Jonas uh, Xenakis. The shape of the building is very extraordinary and inside the pavilion, uh, where some 500 people could, could go in, you had color projections, film projections and the loudspeaker installation with over 300 loudspeakers that uh, distributed the sounds of the of the piece by, uh, by Varese. And that ran for half a year, approximately. There are estimates that somewhere between one and a half and two million people saw the poem. So no piece of electronic music had been heard so often and by so many persons as the, as the Poem Electronique so far. The main reason that I became involved in the in the reconstruction of the Poem Electronique was that we have the tapes. Actually, we have several versions of it in the Synology Archive. The reason is that uh, just as many pieces from that time, although it was intended to be a multi-channel work, uh, while the uh, piece was produced in the studio, the multi-channels were actually on several monophonic tape recorders. They were working on three channels of music, so that meant that uh, uh, in order to uh, listen to just a, a part of the work, they always had to start uh, three tape machines simultaneously. And this was of course sometimes more successful than others. And then only when the piece was completely finished, they made a final recording of those three channels, actually by that time there were five, into a three-channel medium which was uh, perfo tape, which is uh, a kind of 35 millimeter perforated tape material that was used in the film industries uh, for a long time. And the fact that it is perforated on the sides of the uh, material makes it possible to synchronize it mechanically with uh, the film itself. So if you see an editing table for a film, an analog one I mean, then there is this huge transport system that allows you to keep uh, various reels exactly in sync because of these uh, perforations. So there is a four-channel tape on one inch, so that is really a wide tape format, that was considered to be a master tape of the Powert électronique for a long time and then there were other tapes that were classified as only material and we didn't even have the right tape recorders to play those tapes back at the time because you need to play them at 76.2 centimeters a second and we did not have those machines uh, anymore. So once I had a machine to play back those tapes, I found out that these were the tapes that were running at these individual mono machines and. When I played back those individual reels of tape, I heard a sound quality that was so impressive. I mean, because we are used to the fact that the poem is uh, distorted and has a lot of noise and so on. And suddenly, when I played back these individual layers, uh, it was so fresh and so clean that, uh, yeah, I mean, the next step was, of course, to make digital transfers of those layers and to put them on top of another in the computer to do that i also wanted to have an original reference now the this free channel for master that i described is also in our archive and of course we don't have a, a machine to play back that tape so i then contacted the uh, film museum in amsterdam and they had a free channel performer machine so we went there we made a digital transfer of that tape not for the sound quality of that tape itself but only as a reference of how these three channels were aligned exactly originally. So that allowed me in the computer to make a synchronization of those individual layers that was completely identical to the performance that was done in the, in the Phillips Pavilion. Now that was one thing. Then you have another problem which is that in the Phillips Pavilion itself the work was spatialized or respatialized on a very advanced uh, loudspeaker system. It involved more than 300 loudspeakers. And there was an additional 15-channel tape with control signals that in real time controlled the loudspeaker system so that these uh, uh, sounds from the 3-channel tape moved through the space. So it's basically impossible to make a reconstruction of that other than a virtual reconstruction and this is exactly what I became involved in then because there was a project from some universities in Europe uh, to make a virtual reconstruction and that means that you have to put on a virtual reality helmet and with the virtual reality helmet on you can look around in the Phillips Pavilion while the performance is going on and the music is rendered uh, binaurally in such a way that you really hear the sound move along these uh, uh, loudspeaker routes. Then I was for the first time also really involved in the problems of the visual part of the Programme of the film material is known. There are these uh, images of a Spanish bullfighter and monkeys and of uh, industries and of babies and nuclear explosions and, and, and the architecture of Le Corbusier, of course. Then there were additional color projections which needed to be studied. Uh, so that was uh, started uh, at that time. But I went uh, on with that by going to Fondation Le Corbusier in Paris together with another friend, with uh, uh, Jan de Heer, who is an architect himself. He wrote uh, a book about the use of color in the architecture of Le Corbusier and he was very interested in this subject. And this ended up then in a full dome version of the program Electronique that was presented in a digital planetarium in the Holland Festival in 2009. And then we made a five-channel mix of the music. Uh, it is not known precisely how the sounds of the poem were moving over this uh, complex uh, loudspeaker system. We know more or less how the loudspeakers were placed and how these routes were operating. But when a certain sound went to a certain route or to a certain position in the pavilion, it was not documented. So there again you have it, you know, you need to make an interpretation. Nevertheless, I think that uh, it is an interesting thing to do. The question whether the authenticity is is lying in the way that the piece was sounding at that time, or is the authenticity lying in the ideas that the composer and the architect had when they made this piece. So uh, you can see two approaches here, whereas in the virtual electronic poem, the approach indeed was to get as close to the original experience of the visitor of the Philips Pavilion. The approach that we had when we made this reconstruction for the Holland Festival was to completely forget about that and to go back to the sources of the uh, scenario that uh, Le Corbusier made uh, for this uh, performance. Because many of the things that Le Corbusier wanted in his scenario were completely impossible to realize then there were these film images projected in the pavilion. At the same time, he wanted the whole building to be uh, very uh, light uh, pink, which is impossible because if you make very bright pink light, you cannot project a black and white film image at the same time. It just disappears. And you know that when you are in the cinema, the light goes down because otherwise you don't see the film. Uh, He had not thought of these things. Now, if you are working in a digital environment, uh, you can do those things. You know, you can make the whole building uh, light pink and at the same time put a very sharp black and white image on the wall. So we just said, okay, we're now not going to, uh, you know, take the technical limitations of those time as our point of departure, but we are going to take the ideas of the artists as a point of departure, based on research, but the research is not aiming at uh, something that is, an authentic experience, because an experience is never authentic, you know, if you would ask 100 people that were in the original Phillips Pavilion what they have seen, they will all come up with a different story. Of emails that I receive from people that are interested in the Poem Electronique, that is just much larger than from any other piece that I have been working on. So, if you say, Well, what is the biggest treasure of your archive? it's again the the poem. Also, for instance, because the production tapes that I was talking about not only had the Poem but they also had the Interlude Sonore, which is a one minute and 52 seconds work by Xenakis that was used as an uh, interlude in between the performances of the poem. And Xenakis later reworked that piece and it became concrete uh, payage. You know that in the last 10 years there is a huge interest in in the works of Xenakis. So, um, let's say an early version of such an important work, because Concreté-Péage is this work in which Xenakis tried to do something with sound grains that people have later said was a kind of um, early approach comparable to granular synthesis. So if you then suddenly have a version of that work that precedes everything that we know so far of Concreté-Péage then those are things that that I find incredibly fascinating. Yeah, another thing for instance is the tape collection that I have of Tom Disseveld. And not everybody agrees with me uh, how important he was, but uh, because he is of course a completely strange phenomenon. He is somewhere in between jazz, popular culture, and electronic music. (laughs) late 1950s. He was much more adventurous as a composer than many so-called avant-garde composers uh, of that time. The way that he used uh, influences from dodecaphonic composition techniques, serial composition techniques, in his uh, so-called popular electronic works, I mean that is, uh, he had uh, balls. He really was uh, It's very, very interesting, and uh, I have never uh, known him personally, but I have known his wife, who died also later, and uh, uh, when she died, their son found uh, a huge collection of tapes uh, on the the attic, which included uh, many, many things that that I was interested in. A recording of of a 12-tone composition for jazz orchestra. yeah, those things I find. Uh, for me, they, they, at the moment when I discovered those things, they, they were as important as the poem and the But uh, as I say, you know, from the outside world, when people look at this knowledge archive, it's this poem tape that uh, that everybody wants to see and have and touch and. Uh I had a private studio i still have it where i did most of those reconstructions and i was getting uh, assignment work but at a certain point you're just sitting there with uh, you know 10 boxes with uh, i don't know how many hours of uh, poetry recordings and then i soon found out that the studio work wasn't my main interest you know although i could make really high quality transfers Uh, my interest was these works, you know, these compositions, and finding out something about those works by approaching them from a technical uh, point of view. And um, as soon as I was finished with Koenig and with Poorman and with Faresen and with Vrijmakers and with Tom Disseveld and these people, there wasn't so much fun uh, for me in it anymore. I gradually started to become interested in other things. Nevertheless, sometimes I find things, uh, for instance, Koenig just moved to another house and. Uh, Although I thought that I had everything from him, he still found more tapes. And there were quite uh, interesting things there that he had kept for Herbert Brun since the late 1950s. The question is also whose responsibility it is of the current generation to archive all that work. I think the first responsibility lies with composers. If a composer approaches me, who has an interesting collection of work that he took care of himself and that he wants to add to my archive or another archive or something like that then I'm completely open of that but I am not advertising (laughs) to get more and more material here or something like that I'm not so interested in adding every bit of tape that the composer might have left somewhere to the collection to bring back that uh, word it's much more important now to establish context with other institutions such as GRM in Paris, uh, ZKM in Karlsruhe, Technical University, Berlin, so that we know where things are, you know, so that eventually uh, there will be some kind of central database uh, where you can see, okay, if I am interested in that work, there is an archive there where I'm able to listen to it or to study it or to maybe even see the original material or th- these kind of things the problem is of course that nobody has a full-time job to uh, take care of these archives you know it is for all those people it is something that they also do like with me you know i when i look at my uh, um, uh, job description here there is nothing that says take care of the Synology archive it's just something that i feel responsible for and that i do but it is not something that i can spend uh, as much time on as i would uh, would like to do and that goes for all those people i guess you Beatles recording or something I can imagine that you put it on eBay and you become rich but uh, to put a tape of Koenig on eBay uh, I'm not sure if somebody would uh, would bid on it you know but what, what I have been buying from eBay was uh, vinyl especially when I was working on this uh, popular electronic CD box with markers. you know we just wanted to have the original gramophone covers in the CD booklets and sometimes we didn't have them so we... and then Later, I just out of fun, I, I kept looking on eBay for things that had to do with Disseveld or with uh, Badings or with uh, Reimakers, and one time I m- managed to buy uh, several uh, uh, albums with electronic music from Philips that came from the phonogram, so from the the record industry's uh, archive in Amsterdam, and they still they were unplayed and they still had the charts that were inside with the archive. Uh, Codes uh, in them and so on, and they were non-commercial copies, uh, not for sale and so on. And uh, although they were selling them now and for quite a lot of money, I can tell you. <laughs> but uh, so, yeah. And then I said, okay, well, this is something that is so interesting to add to my archive. And then I'm, I am almost a collector again. You know, not that I want to have everything, but those things then interest me. And also because. I find it interesting to listen to the, the difference between the gramophone pressing from 1960 and the actual tape. Uh, so if I have the master tape here, let's see what they did with it uh, when they pressed it on vinyl. Did it change a lot? Uh, was it almost the same? Sometimes you have these, these pieces that were produced in mono and then they made some kind of stereophonic by spreading the frequency content over the left and the right channel. It's interesting to listen to that and to see what what the procedure uh, was. Sometimes the work of collectors can be uh, uh, very important. For instance, coming back to the Phyllis Pavilion and the Poème Melatonique, I have a good friend, a doctor from the south of the Netherlands, Peter Wever, who is indeed a collector. He started as a collector of things that have to do with the Brussels World Fair of 1958. And he has a little museum at his house even, you know, where all those things that he finds and buys uh, are uh, on display but at the same time his drive delivered the most fantastic things for instance he found six former technicians of the of the Philips Pavilion in Belgium and one of them still had the original film reels of the Philips Pavilion in his cellar and of course he was extremely happy to add those things to his collection at the same time it was uh, uh, from a historical point of view uh, a very important item because we were able to have these uh, film reels uh, digitized uh, at the film museum in in amsterdam and uh, they were a very important uh, source for, for research as well and i understand the pleasure of collecting also you know because of course when i find something that was considered to be lost i feel that too but my pleasure is not so much that i put it in a glass uh, display in my house, you know, but I find it uh, an interesting thing because I can do research, because I can uh, maybe write a publication about it or something like that.